My name's Steve Mitchell. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, it's um, it's good to be here. I, um, where you at, Deborah? Got Deborah. There you go. Thank you. Um, you know, I've, um, sometimes at uh, workshops, I'll jot down. A, I've never learned to talk from notes. Don't want to talk from notes. All of that, but I've learned to jot down a couple thoughts. It keeps me from bouncing all over. Sometimes I get going so far off, I don't know what I'm saying, <laughs> let alone the poor people trying to listen. And I had that sheet of paper a minute ago, but it's gone. <laughs> so uh, you're just going to have to hang on tight. I'll do the best I can. It's good to be here. I appreciate the invitation. I appreciate the people that put this on, and, and I appreciate the spirit behind it, the idea behind it. Uh, the idea behind it that Alcoholics Anonymous is simply more powerful than the illness of alcoholism. It'll reverse a killer illness. It'll take you from under a bridge to the corporate boardroom. Took one man, uh, the guy that brought me to North Carolina back in 1989, it took him from a maximum security prison to uh, a warden of a prison, then a complex administrator over several prisons, then the deputy director of a, of a, of a division. Spent a million dollars of the state's money one day. He had the authority to do it, but that's a long pull from, from uh, so it'll do all kinds of stuff. Ain't no doubt about that. I'll assure you there's one thing Alcoholics Anonymous can't do, it won't do, and it ain't never been able to do, and that is stop life from coming at you. And that's what our founders gave us with, uh, with the principles that we're supposed to be living by. And if you ever wondered about the genius of our founders, there's, there's some pretty easy ways to clear that up. One, if you need to know, if you ever wonder what a newcomer needs to know when they come to Alcoholics Anonymous, they need to know what we used to be like, what happened, and what we're like now. That's what a newcomer needs to know. I don't see him here, but there's a guy in my home group that swears newcomers don't like speakers. There he is. He swears newcomers don't like speaker meetings. I don't know if that's true, but, but um, that's, meetings are just one thing we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. AA is a way of life. And while meetings are critically important to that, it's just one thing we do. But if you look at meetings proper, speaker meetings are the most pure meeting we have. One alcoholic shares their experience, strength, and hope, and other alcoholics listen. We hope. They hope we hope they listen. Uh, anyway, I'm a member of a group. I'm a member of the principals group in Raleigh. Uh, we're one group, but we're a three legacy group. I've got a sobriety date. It's May 26, 1975. The way I would describe that is I would describe that as long days and fast years. That's how I would describe that. And um, so what I'm going to do, this is dangerous for me to say this, but uh, that's what I'm going to do. I was hoping Rhonda was here. She, she's the official timekeeper at those workshops Sandy puts on. And she can, she can you know how, you know, you take a 10-minute AA break at a, at a thing and 40 minutes later people come back? Uh, she keeps it on time. So I, I'm going to take, I'm, I'm going to be done identifying the results of my alcoholism within five minutes. If I'm not... You come up here and pull me down, Feather. I'm going to be done in five minutes, okay? I'm not going to bore you with a lot of stuff. I grew up in alcoholism. I've been around alcoholism all my life. My active alcoholism took off from age 15 to 25, almost 26. When I ended up at the ripe old age of 25, almost 26, I was more dead than alive. I'd been homeless for a couple years. When I went to the bathroom, blood came out. When I vomited, blood came out. My feet were all swollen up. I'd been hearing and seeing things that weren't there. I was in bad straits, and um, some of the things that happened in my alcoholism, well, let me say this, I can cut to the chase on this, I, I, I sacrificed almost all of my psychic to drink alcohol, and a good bit of my soul to drink alcohol. When I got here, there was precious little left. Couldn't have stood any more failure. Something had to give. So, some of the things that happened... Um, Guy held me at gunpoint one night, and I asked him, is that thing loaded? Or are you just trying to scare me? He hung it out the window and fired it. It was a 357. And then I remember, I was very drunk, and I, but I remember this. That's a lie that you can't sober up except for time. That's a lie. When he fired that 357, I sobered up some. <laughs> and uh, he said, get out of the car. I'm going to shoot you. And the most dangerous man in the car was a guy named Harold McGee. He's dead now, but I'd met Harold McGee. I was probably 25 years old when this happened. I'd met Harold McGee when I was 17. I was in jail for 18 days for minor possession, and Harold was in there for a habitual felon sentence, and, and he was 35 years old when I was 17, and he had spent 18 years of his life locked up at that time. He said, don't shoot him, Cease. And when we got out of the car, Harold shoved me in the ditch. Another guy jumped Cecil. The gun fell down. 
Harold got the gun, the most dangerous man there. The only thing that happened to me that night is they shoved me in the ditch. Harold hit Cecil in the face with a whiskey bottle and broke his nose. Later, Cecil was killed during the commission of a burglary. There was a couple people there that night definitely capable of pulling the, the trigger. I was in two car wrecks one night one time. One of the cars was totaled out. We got another car and, and reported it stolen and got in a wreck with that one. The worst news of the second one, I got the wrong girl, but he got, the other guy got the one I wanted. Second car wreck. Um, I, some people are in here are old enough to remember Renault's, the car Renault's. I only rode in one twice. It was in bad wrecks in both of them. I got one. I hit a, the median in Spokane, Washington, and it wrapped right around. It couldn't get the car off the median. <laughs> I was in another one about 5 o'clock in the morning. I was passed out in the front seat, and a guy ran into a, right in the residential section, he ran into this big old car parked on the side of the street and lights come, you know, people wake up, it's five o'clock in the morning, so I jump out and I said, man, we got to get out of here. He said, I can't, half my car's gone. <laughs> you know, those things happen time after time after time, just stuff that, I was in a horrible tractor trailer accident one time, I was in the sleeper when the trailer came through there. You ever seen one of those wrecks where everybody should have been killed, nobody got a scratch? That's what that was. You could, I was passed out in the sleeper. You could literally look out and see the sky. There was a hole, a big gouge where the trailer on the driver's side had ruptured right through where, I, where my head was, right above it. You could look out and see. I didn't know. I didn't know I was there. Um, diesel fuel was all over the highway. The guy driving the truck said that, um, he said, I watched the trailer come around and hit in the mirror. He said, didn't even spill the beer between my legs. <laughs> I'll give you one more. I just caught on to this about a year or two ago. I was making a talk somewhere and a guy came up to me after the meeting and he said, let me ask you something, man. He said, now I'm as serious as I've ever been. Did I hear you say you hitchhiked all over Vietnam, drunk without a weapon? I said, you certainly did. He said, I've been in Vietnam veteran affairs since we got out of there, and I swear I have never heard of anything like that. I said, well, I can tell you some more stuff. I rode in a Vietnamese garbage truck one time to drink. I rode in the, I rode in the freezer of a Korean ice cream truck. Uh, I mean, I rode in every kind of vehicle. And she said, what were you doing in the village? I said, well, that's where the women were. You know? There's no secret with that. I've got paperwork today. I had precious little effects when I, when I got sober, but I've got two things where they had to get me out of jail in South Vietnam. They gave me the name Su Chin Kid. Su Chin was the village. So I, you know, village is off limits, so that's where I hang out. <laughs> One more minute? All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw the minute away and, and get after this. <laughs> I've been given the topic of carrying this message, we can help others, and, and uh, man, is that ever true. What is the message? Well, there's a couple things that might be helpful to, to, to look at as we tear into this. I'm going to have to roll on. This is a lot of ground to try to plow in an hour. Um, people spend all weekend talking about these things nowadays, at workshops. and um, uh, Where to start? In North Carolina, we've got two of the best examples that have ever carried the message. Um, anywhere, I've been in most states in, of the United States as a guest of Alcoholics Anonymous. And until the last couple, three years, the first thing anybody wanted to know when you, they saw your name tag, North Carolina, they say, do you know Tom Ivester? That's the first thing they want to know. I was in uh, New Orleans recently, just before the pandemic, and a federal judge came up to me. He was on the program, non-alcoholic, but he saw my name tag. He said, man, you're from North Carolina. I bet you know Tom Ivester personally. I said, I sure do. So he told me about in 2012, about the last, probably Tom shouldn't even have been doing it then, but him and that federal judge did a workshop in New Orleans, and the judge told me, he said, it's one of the highlights of my life of good things and of bad things that have happened to me. It's one of my banner memories. So he told me about this workshop that him and Tom did, and he said that uh, when I got done with my part of it, Tom pulled me off to the side and wanted to know why I said that. And he said, well, I explained it to him the best I could. And I said, you do realize that that meant Tom didn't agree with what you said. <laughs> he said, yeah, I caught on to that. thing about Tom is you don't even know you've been cut till you see the blood. <laughs> and then uh, the other one they wanted to know was Keith Lewis. Now, I was sponsored by Keith Lewis for many years. I've had several sponsors. I've had four since I've been in North Carolina because of people dying and sick. And, and uh, he was probably the ideal sponsor for me. Tom and I was Tom was my sponsor for years after he left the system and I was still in it until he wasn't able to provide any more direction. Um, 
Tom and I were probably a better program fit, but, but Keith was probably the ideal sponsor for me. So as you start to think about what my topic is, it might be well to think about this. There's only two things we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. There might be a thousand different big things, but everything we do in Alcoholics Anonymous comes down to one of these. We do it to stay sober or to carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. Everything else comes back under that. That's our job description. So I always like to say there's two things. No identification, no Alcoholics Anonymous, no 12 steps, no Alcoholics Anonymous. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay out a little bit about some stuff that's happened and probably hopefully come in and out of that as we go along, but at, at the pinnacle of Alcoholics Anonymous is, is the 12 steps. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous is. That's what flies into the middle of an illness that destroys even people who don't drink, even people who just get close to us. It mows down everything in its, in its uh, path. So I, I think this goes without saying, but I'll go ahead and say it. Um, I don't think anybody's going to be able to tear into those steps without home group and sponsorship. Those are fundamentals to Alcoholics Anonymous. They're also intensely personal. That's very personal business, who your sponsor is and, and uh, your home group. I had some management training one time that talked about um, that anytime you work for a man or woman that you wouldn't hire if the shoe was on the other foot, you're going to have trouble. You can do it, but you're going to have trouble. Alcoholics Anonymous is one of the few places in life your average man or woman can decide who their leaders are. So in that case, in my, in, in my op, uh, life, I've, I've had the best. I've had absolutely the best. Um, it's just there, there's, there's no doubt about it. I've had people that were never my sponsor unless if you look at like global sponsor or group sponsorship or something like that, they were just, they were people that were leading everybody. They've played tremendous parts too. But the people that have been my actual sponsor have been absolute spiritual giants. Not necessarily in terms of their godliness, but in terms of their belief in this program. When I look back, I got sober in Fremont, Nebraska, and um, not exactly the mecca of, of middle America. Uh, it's a town of about 25,000 people outside Omaha, and uh, if I look back at that time, what those people offered was absolutely the belief that there could be no failure here. That this thing, any alcoholic could get drunk, any alcoholic can get drunk. I could get drunk, but I'm not going to just walk off and get drunk. The first thing I'd have to do is I'd have to get away from you. And if you look at what's going on, like, what, like this gathering today, if you look at the illness, back up a little bit and think about the illness. The illness itself breeds itself in isolation. Alcoholism breeds itself in isolation. That doesn't mean anything to do with the proximity of people. Keith Lewis used to talk about laying in bed next to a woman that he loved and he thought loved him with their legs touching, both of them frozen, not being able to say a word to each other because he'd been drunk one more time. So the illness of alcoholism and the loneliness of alcoholism and breeding it in isolation doesn't have anything to do with the proximity of people. You can be alone in your own family at Christmas time. Recovery breeds itself in community. So there's things happening that we're not aware of. As we, as we move along. And as I look back now, what that message was is that this, you can't miss. You can't miss. And I wanted to say one other thing, too. It's on my mind. There's this revisionist history thing about what AA used to be like. Um, I heard a guy a while back got sober in the 90s talking about what a different time it was. People pull you up and tell you to shut up in meetings, get in the car and put the cotton in your mouth. I never got any of that. Never saw any of it. Heard of it. But I never saw any of it. The closest I ever came to that is a guy told me one time, he said, you follow me and I'll cut you a path. And man, did he ever. You know. So it's, there's, there's a thing here that um, I, I don't know how to talk about this because it sounds, I don't know, maybe it sounds arrogant or condescending or like I got a lot of answers. But there's this idea that AA may or may not work now that AA may or may not be on track or whatever that is. And if, if, to reframe this talk, it doesn't need reframing, but one of the questions those serious members have to ask, and I've asked myself for years, I hope all of us in here ask, are we going to squander our inheritance? And I have thought for years that we were. I don't think we are anymore. I, I, I'm not worried about it like I was at one time. I, I don't think we're going to squander our inheritance. I think we're going to be safe. I think with all the problems of uh, 2020, it's been a very dark year. 
we did a workshop down in, in uh, Wilson months ago. I don't remember when it was. I don't know. It was a long time ago, August or September or something. And I don't know. We had five or six people just bust into tears in that thing. I mean, people are struggling. It was a dark year. It's a very difficult year. But the title of that workshop was AA in Difficult Times. You know, that's what, I mean, Tom Iverson used to talk about that. If a crisis comes and you ain't ready, you can't get ready. If the crisis comes, you're either ready or you ain't. It ain't going to feel like you are. I mean, I've been through some horrible times in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been through two times in Alcoholics Anonymous that made being homeless seem like kid stuff. So I would just say that there's, there's, there's things to think about. And, and, and a couple other thoughts, maybe leading into this, is that I've got this idea. Um, I'm going to editorialize a little bit. Most of this stuff I think will square up with our literature, but I'm going to editorialize a little bit. This is, I've had this thought for a long time that those of us under the tent of Alcoholics Anonymous and those of us that are still drinking share something in common. It's not a good thing either, and I think we underestimate the illness. I don't think we realize what we're up against. Now, the other part of that thought that, that is good is that Alcoholics Anonymous is more than equal to whatever comes. But that's got to be practiced as a way of life. Alcoholics Anonymous will hold us. But there's a part of alcoholism I don't think we can quite touch. And for my money, it's a non-alcoholic who got about as close to it as you can. That's Dr. Carl Jung. He explained it about as close as you can. He used words like evil, devil, spirits. And I think he left it to us how we might interpret what that meant. But essentially what he was saying to, the, to, the, to, the, to most alcoholics, it's just too much. The bottle is too much. And that's absolutely true. Most alcoholics never get within a screaming distance of Alcoholics Anonymous. They, they don't even get close to us. So a lot to think about. We've got a lot of work ahead of us, but there's no group of people any better equipped to, to do it than us. You know, if you're here today, you've given up a Saturday to hang out. And, you know, I know one thing is that, that when I'm done here today, you ain't going to be any smarter than you are now. I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, hopefully, what we will all do is we'll, we'll tighten up on what we've got, which is a very worthy undertaking. You know, whatever you send out comes back. I mean, I think we all learn that in sobriety, whether we're able to put it into words or not. But if you send out trash, trash comes back. If you send out love, love comes back. So. Um, here's what happened to me in um, late 1974 I'm back from California one more time I'm very sick and a lady and her boyfriend from Bill's bar invited another guy and I to their house for Thanksgiving dinner 1974 this is a rough crowd right Libby was um, she was permanent party at Bill's bar you ever seen one of those bars where everybody in there needed to be an AA you could back a farm truck up and put everybody in there you wouldn't miss the person and her boyfriend was a bull hauler. I'll tell you how rough a crowd this was. He drug her across the river over in Iowa to meet his mom. And uh, when he got up to go to the bathroom, his mom pulled Libby into the kitchen and said, Honey, I'm going to give you some advice. What you need to do is get as far away from that drunken bum as quick as you can because he'll ruin your life. Now, that's his mom talking. <laughs> so it's a rough bunch. But her heart was as big as Nebraska. So anyway, I can't eat, right? She had a big, beautiful Thanksgiving dinner. She had her kids in. I'm, I'm very sick. She's bringing in beer for me to sip on. I wake up. I'm drenched in my own sweat, but I'm freezing. Bad shape. And I go to the bathroom. Blood comes out. My feet are all swollen up. I'm turning colors. And you know, another thing about that. Now, this is one of the reasons I've always thought so many people come to AA so angry at God and come here saying they don't believe in God is we've tried to get help misguided now but nevertheless we've tried to get help health not forthcoming blame God he doesn't answer back it's a lot easier than, than uh, any other thing but anyway I had been looking for a way out for a long time I had some ideas on how I was going to get out one I was going to marry a rich woman as sick as I was it wasn't looking like that was going to happen even I could see that the other thing I was going to get a job that was always going to be tomorrow tomorrow I'm going to get a job I'm going to sip a little bit of beer I'm going to go get a job. I'm just going to sip enough to take the edge off. That's like saying I ain't going to drive a car when I'm drinking. That makes perfect sense until I start drinking. Once you start drinking, that don't make sense anymore. But she rolled up on me. Now, there's two things that are very hard to talk about. One is pain, and the other one are time. They're very hard to capture. 
That's one reason I've stayed as busy in Alcoholics Anonymous as I have. It's good to run a little green here. It's good to run in awe of the gift. It's good to run a little ignorant here. I've noticed, just like you have, the smart ones don't stay here quite as well. But she had a talk with me that went very much like this. She said, I've been around alcoholics all my life. I've been married to two alcoholics. You've got to remember, she's permanent party at Bill's Bar, too. But she said, I don't think I've ever seen anything like you at your age. There's a man in town who helped my last ex-husband, who's now been sober a full year, got a full-time job, he's doing very well. If you want me to, I'll call him. Here's what happened. November 30th, 1974, a guy named Bob Brannigan rolled up, spent all Saturday afternoon with me. And what he did is he told me the story of his life, what he used to be like, what happened, and what he was like now. He spent all Saturday. He, this was the big red machine, dynasty years. He was a rabid fan. He didn't make the game. He made the 12-step call. I remember very little of that. I think he stayed about three hours, they said. I just remember a couple, three things. I remember asking him, even though I'd been around alcoholism all my life, I didn't know anything about it. I said, how do you get the willpower to not drink? And he said, I look on willpower a little bit different than you do. What willpower means to me is the way you take that drink knowing it's going to come back up. That's what I think willpower is. I thought that was a little strange. I remember asking him, how long since you drank? And he said, if I can make it till September, it'll be 11 years. A couple other things. He told me that he'd build a house. He had a wife and five kids. I think he was 35 years old at that time. Catholics had his five kids in that part of the country at that time. That he'd lost his wife and kids, and he lost the house that he'd built for him. And then he said, and I should have. I was a little bit baffled by that. The next morning, he pulled up by agreement, picked me up, put me in a great big long. Remember those cars from that time? They're about a half of a block long. Probably cost $5 to start the motor on one of them. He picked me up, big blue Oldsmobile. Picked up another guy outside of town, 25 years old, now dead, by the way, from drinking. But he headed us towards Hastings. At that time, everybody in the state hospital was either homeless or from prison. And you know how you need a drink? Not you want a drink, but you need a drink. I needed a drink. I mean, I really needed a drink. I had horrible cramps. I didn't get a drink, but here's what he did. He bought me a carton of 7-Up, and a, and a, a carton of, of Marlboro cigarettes, and a can of 7-Up. And I laid that great line on him. You know what it was? I'll pay you back. <laughs> the second great line in those days, I don't even think you have to use it now, but the second great line from those days was, I'll still like you in the morning. But that's what I said, I'll pay you back. And he looked over at me probably about as long as you could take your eyes off the road. He looked over at me, not, not glanced over, he looked over at me and he said, that ain't the way this works. You'll be expected to help someone else when you're able. I'd like to think that's what I've been doing for the last almost 46 years. But anyway, if you look at what's going on with that, the first, and I didn't stay sober, it was gonna be another six months before I was to get sober. If you look at what the first step says, and I, I, let me, let me phrase this another way. Um, the best way to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, there are many ways. Somebody asked somebody to come to this. Somebody made the coffee. Somebody decided they had the idea. Somebody got the speakers. Somebody's going to clean it up. Somebody's a GSR. There's all kinds of stuff. The best way to work with alcoholics is to recover from alcoholism. Because if you're a recovered alcoholic, there's all kinds of things that are going to happen automatically. Just like there's stuff going on here today we're not aware of. We're breeding recovery in community. There's people gathered up. Several people outside told me, man, I really needed this. So that's, that's what's going on. Just like there's stuff on our demise of the illness of alcoholism that we're not aware of. Alcoholism is a very hard illness to capture, to try to, to, try to we know some stuff about it. But it's a very hard thing. You know, when I found out that alcoholism went on when I wasn't drinking, that was good news, but it's also bad news. You know, because the first thing that happens when you quit drinking is you, you got to start to learn how to live. But anyway, that first step says, a matter of factly, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, dash, that our lives had become unmanageable. What that means is I'm having trouble drinking, I'm having trouble not drinking. That's all there is. I mean, you're either drinking or you ain't drinking. It means you're having trouble. Lots of it, right? And that's a very hopeless place. And, and the other thing I'd, I'd like to, I think Sarah flirted with this idea, unsaid maybe. But there's this idea now, I don't know if it's like you're a technocrat or what it is, but there's people slamming people through the steps in that book. And it's, I mean, I don't think they know what's supposed to happen when or whatever. It's more like a... Um, I don't know what it is. It's, I know it when I see it. 
But there's stuff going on that should happen with these steps, and if we understand it and we've had the experience, then we know because it's sequential. Somebody called me a while back and was telling me about somebody they were working with, and they said they've been on their fourth step for eight months. I said, no, they ain't. <laughs> they might have been doing something for eight months, but they ain't been on a fourth step for eight months. That ain't, that ain't gonna happen. I think Keith Lewis used to say, I think they asked, how long does it take to do a four step? He said, about eight months and two hours. You, you could put any term to that, you know. Um, so, anyway. But, I, you know, the first step, now this, again, this is my take on it, but I think Alcoholics Anonymous literature supports this. All 12 steps are of equal importance to the well-ordered life. Obviously not at the same time. But the first step, as, as profound as it is, and will get us under the tent if, if conditions conspire to come together like that, it's also a very bad place to hang out very long because you've just admitted it's hopeless. It's not a place to keep somebody. It's not a place to stay. I mean, I, I don't live in fear of the first drink. I don't think Alcoholics Anonymous is a snake bite kit to keep from drinking. It's a way of life. If you look at the way the steps are laid out, it presupposes you're not drinking when you come to your first meeting. Now, I came to some meeting drinking. People can do that. But, but if you look at what the first step says, it's a recognition of my condition. And I think that's why sometimes you'll hear, I think Reed used to I think sometimes you'll hear people say that they, the first three steps moved in their life before they knew what they were. Well, that's very possible that that could easily happen. But the first step, as powerful as it is, it's a step. But it's a very bad place because this is just my observation. If something doesn't happen pretty quick, there's going to be no cigar. We've already been living in hopelessness. We don't need any more of it. What we need is hope. And I've always thought, my God, I've always thought, uh, I told you, this is a lot of ground to try to plow in a very short period of time. Um, I've always thought it was one of Bill Wilson's greatest jokes, that second step, where it says chapter to the agnostics, because that step is just replete with pure spiritual power. I mean, if you talk about power greater than ourselves, just leaping into your, wherever you're reading that, it's in that, it's in the second step, the step of hope. Now, I did some crazy things when I was drinking. You feel Mother Teresa full of as much mad dog wine as I was drinking. She'd do some crazy stuff, too. I was in a spiritual awakening a long time before I got to AA. Um, but I don't think that's what the step's talking about. It probably has a little bit of application to that. But the most crazy, off-track thing I could do today would be to take a drink with the idea this time it's going to be different. That's what insanity is. And so what I like to do is I like to try to move that second step into my life in today's problems, whatever's going on today. I need to get it off of the first step. If things aren't going well at home, my wife or whatever, I need to get it off of the first step. I can see what ain't working. I need to get it to the second step where it's a step of hope. Hope is an incredibly healing quality. You ever roll up on somebody that's not home, that's dead? You ever talk to a mission rat? I'm talking about somebody, not somebody who's hit a homeless shelter, but somebody who lives that way. Engage them in conversation. I'll guarantee you within the first three minutes they're going to work into the conversation what they used to be. Or they're going to show you, they got a picture in their billfold or they'll show you, man, I was a paratrooper in Afghanistan. Or this is a picture of my niece, she graduated from Duke. Well, that stuff probably a lot of times is true, but the reason they're living in the past is the dreams are gone. There is no hope. When you look into the eyes of somebody, now their heart's beating, so they're alive, but there's nobody there. I mean, that's, a, that's, that's, that's tough. You'll see that on prison yards sometimes. Sometimes it's the personality kids with all the mouth that got that, rolling, that, got that going on if you roll up on them. You know, I used to go out on the, I, I, I worked in prison administration for years. I used to go out on the yard, and you had those grown men doing that walk that's appropriate to about 15. You know, they're cool with that walk. I used to roll up on them and say, if you don't grow up and start walking like an adult, I'm going to tell people what you're really in here for. You know, <laughs> you, know you listen to him tell, he's just beat another murder charge, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, but hope, I mean, that's a very tough thing to try to live in the world without hope. And that's what the second step, now I didn't know this at the time, but that's what happened the first summer I was sober. I couldn't have put it into words. If I, this is just me again now, I know the book says resentment is the number one offender, but if I had to rename the illness of alcoholism, 
just for me, I would call it fear. So the first summer I was sober, I hadn't lost any of my fear. I was terrified. It took me probably five years in AA to find out how mad I was. I experienced everything as fear. It wasn't because of no application of the steps. The steps were as live. I'm not an expert on the 12 steps. I'm an expert on one thing about the steps. I have banged and pound on those, pounded on those steps as hard as you possibly can. Somebody else might have done better. I'm not saying how well. The only thing that can't be argued is I've nailed the first one. I've stayed sober. The rest of it's open to discussion. But I've done the best that I could. But that second step is an incredibly healing thing. Now, I couldn't have put into words what had happened that first summer I was sober, but I know this. I know today. And it's a little discussed, but it's a fact. And it would take care of it if it were discussed more, even better yet, if it were lived more. Alcoholics Anonymous is a written program. It's passed on through an oral tradition, but it's written down for us. Almost every possible thing has been presupposed and written down. So if we would know a little bit more about what, what it is that we've got there, we would have an easier way forward. So the second step, a step of hope that moved, I think it moved in my life primarily through AA literature and through speaker meetings. Speaker meetings were incredibly important. I started going to meetings every day and speaker meetings were incredibly important. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood him. My sponsor took me by my hand. We got down on our knees in front of this church railing and we said the third step prayer. He asked me if I was willing to do that, turn my will and my life over. I said I was, which I was, and then he asked me what I thought they were, and I didn't have any idea. And what he told me, I've, still, I've used it all these years, he said, we're going to look on your will as your thinking and your life as your actions. And he said, it's a lot easier to change the way you act than it is to change the way you think or feel. He said, if you don't know what to do in a situation, you call me and I'll tell you what to do. Now, I didn't know this at the time, but there's no way I turned my will and my, uh, my life over the care of God that I understood at that time because I blamed God for the direction my life had taken. My drinking had caused a death and my hatred had caused a, been at least a good bit responsible for the death of another person and all the carnage that comes with alcoholism. So what I know today that I did, I turned my will and my life over to my sponsor and to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I still remember one thing he told me that day. He said, the more dependent you can be on these principles, the more independence you're going to have as a person. It's just contraindicated. Almost everything in the spiritual life is just opposite. It's like when you do a, when you do a four step, you know, the people on your resentment list are the ones you end up making amends to. You know, you die to live, you give something away to keep it, you know, all of those things. They don't make any sense. Can you imagine rolling up on somebody in a bar and saying, I got to die to live? I mean, it's just opposite. It's just whole... So I, I know now that I did. I didn't know that that's what I did at the time, but I know now that that's what I did. I turned my will and my life over to my sponsor. Now, over the years, most of that's been straightened out. I'm rarely afraid of God anymore. I, you know, my life has changed, but I still believe some of that same stuff. You know, some of the power greater than ourselves is, is embodied in you. You know, I can't think about Alcoholics Anonymous without thinking about the people. I can't think about the people without thinking about God. So it's all kind of in, in, in together. Now, when I pray, I don't pray to, to Jerry. But nevertheless, his part is important. You know, it's, it's, we're a society. We're banded together. We can do things. We can do things together. If, just a casual observation of history in the world. Bad things happen with groups of people banded together that won't happen with somebody alone, and good things happen with people banded together. It just depends on your, your course of action. So, fourth step, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Uh, the, and the three basic things are resentment, fear, and sex. And um, I got all that down on paper. Dixon asked me one time, where's Dixon? Oh, yeah, Dixon. Good job, man, this morning. He asked me one time, this is probably five or six years ago, he said, how did your sponsor help you with the steps when you were new? I was sober 19 years, I think, almost 20 years, before I was taken through the book. Nobody was. Tom Ivers just went through the book ahead of me. Uh, nobody was at that time. We, uh, and what I told Dixon was, is our sponsor would meet with us in a coffee shop or in a house and talk to us about a step. And they would share their experience. 
So this idea of dissecting the book, while it's been critically, it's profound, it, it came along. People have been getting sober a long time before that. And in Nebraska, you get out in those German and farm settlements, you have people that have done fifth steps. They'll tell you it's a fifth step. Now, they have ridden back and forth the meetings with the same people for years and years. And after a number of years, they've, they've gotten rid of it all. They've cleaned house. So it's, remember now, it's, you know, the book is not the answer. The book is a description of the answer. It's not to be deified. It's to be used, and it's an instruction book put into purpose. We got a lot of AA literature. So I got all that down on paper, and um, I did my first fifth step with a Catholic priest. I have a sponsor, but I did my first fifth step with a Catholic priest who was an old grandfatherly gentleman. Long recovered member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the reason, I didn't care anything about being Catholic at that time, but I had it in my head that a priest couldn't tell. Talk about self-centered. I mean, I, I didn't know the only reason the priest can't tell is if he's in, in, with a hat, the box in the confessional. Otherwise, he's not bound by anything different, you or me. But anyway, I got, he told me to be prepared. I didn't know him very well. I called him on the telephone. He said, yeah, I'll hear it Saturday morning. And he, he actually gave me the words. He said, be prepared for a long talk. Be at the rectory at 9 o'clock. Ten minutes to nine, I hit the door at the rectory, and he opened the door. He had on a yellow shirt, and he had on those big baggy pants. He had on those shoes, about three sizes, too, that people wear their feet hurt. Had on white socks, and he had his chewing tobacco in his pocket. He said, I'm Bob, and I'm an alcoholic. And um, I had some heavy stuff to get through on there. I had the death of that person to get through. Um, one of the things he told me before we started, he said, now it's important... If you don't mind, I'd like to offer a prayer, but he said it's important for both of us to remember that God's in here. And he said, essentially, I'm going to be a listener. If I've got something to say, I'll say it. But I had some heavy stuff to get through. Now, this is what I've learned. I've heard my share of fifth steps from men and women. I've heard a number of women's fifth steps. I used to help out at a treatment center when they got behind. So I've heard a lot of fifth steps. My experience is the overwhelming majority of what people intend to take to the grave with them before A has to do with sex. Men and women, overwhelming majority of what they intend to take to the grave with them. And I had plenty of that too, but I had one thing in there that didn't have to do with anything. You ever have something like that? It's so stupid, it doesn't even make sense, but it was bigger than life. And somehow, he must have known that. Because when I said it, he stopped and he said, I'd like to say some stuff about that. And he did. And that, that went away, it's never bothered me as it sense. But it didn't have anything to do with anything. It wasn't even the top hundred things I had to cover that day. Now here's what happened. I left there at noon, and this is where I'd like to, um, what word could I use? I'd like to get you to be open-minded and think with me because this is a sophisticated crowd of Alcoholics Anonymous to be here today. This is a sincere, if you've ever done many group inventories, you, you get the idea pretty quick that there's a level of sophistication in a group that may not be in another one right, of how well they grapple with issues and everything. Now, I'm going to say this isn't heresy. I've done my share of fifth steps. I did one, I think, in 2019. As a movement, as a fellowship, we're over-identified with the fifth step. It's an event. And then you go on. The heavy lifting starts after that. Now, again, this is my take on it, for what it's worth. But when I got done that day, this is what, this is what my listener said to me. His name is Bob Foster. He's at the big meeting now. Good guy. He said, you got a long ways to go, son. He said, you got to go home and do your sixth and seventh step. You got a long pull with amends. But he said, I'm going to tell you right now, so far, right up till today, you got it right with man and God. And then he said, and you're never obligated to utter another word of this as long as you live with one exception. You hate to hear that. After that first line, you're done with this. You hate to hear that word, but... And you know what it was, of course. It was, you're obligated to share this if you can help somebody with it. And when I left there that day, I'll never forget this. I was sober. I, it was the first one I tried sober. I was a little bit late as far as terms after being sober to doing it because I had done one drunk not too long before AA. So I was a little slow. Um, but that day, when I left the rectory, it was three hours and ten minutes after I got there, I had... A couple thoughts on my way out the door. One is, man, I've come a considerable distance. Anybody that's willing to go into a room with somebody and tell them any, every filthy, rotten, corruptible thing they've ever done, you probably believe you, your life depends on it. And the other thing was, the thought that came to me was, this would be a bad place to pull out. 
Now this is what I want you to get you to think with me on this. This is where I think we lose our members. I think something happens after the fifth step where people move into six and seven, whether they either begin to transition to move, mature sobriety or they begin to go out the door. Now it doesn't look that way. It looks like we lose people at step eight. That's how it looks. Remember when we did that a few years ago with Tom? We'd get a couple times a year, as a handful of guys, we'd get Tom Ivester to, uh, we'd give him a topic and then he'd be responsible for handling it and we'd meet all day. We'd eat lunch and all that in the middle. But we spent all day looking at that. You know, the st sixth step says uh, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. What I think has to happen is the sixth step has to become to my life like the first step was to my drinking. Because the first thing that happens when an alcoholic of my description quits drinking is all that stuff goes underground. That's why you got all that stuff going on. That's why triple X porn range today. That's why people are so angry and they're so, you got workaholism going on. You got gambling, you got all of this stuff because that, all those, all that stuff goes underground. And now it's full flush. It's right here. And, and like I said, one thing Alcoholics Anonymous can't do is it can't stop life from coming at you. So the sixth step is the beginning of a major transitional time in the program. Whether you, for me, that's where mature sobriety began. You know, and when you look at stuff that's wrong, there's only, you know, errors of judgment are a lot easier to fix than errors of integrity. I've made both, so I know. Errors of judgment are, are errors of integrity can be fixed too, but they're harder. So the sixth step is really a transitional point where you move towards something major. It's where you get the courage to do the stuff that comes on, that's, that's, that's coming on. And then step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. And there's been all this over the years. People argue about the difference between a defect and a shortcoming. You know what Bill Wilson said about that? He had an English teacher that told him, don't use the same words all the time. So, um, doing pretty good at my time, ain't I? I am. Um, so step seven, I, you know, my, my, my ability to practice the seventh step is almost all dependent on my ability to practice the sixth step. Years ago, my sponsor, a sponsor, it was Tom Ivester, by the way, said the word work in association with the steps is the wrong word. So what do you mean by that? He said it implies too much that you can do. The proper word is practice. So I was talking to a guy a while back, and I, I, he didn't stay in AA, I didn't think he was going to, but I was trying to talk about this stuff to him, and about uh, practice, you know, surrender and practice. He said, can you give me a little more on that? I said, nope. <laughs> That's the problem. If I could give you a little more on it, it wouldn't be so difficult. But we practice these things. I, I, I did a thing at an AA meeting just recently. I think a couple other people in here did too. It was in Seattle, Washington. I know the guy well that invited me to do it. But they had a thing called proud time. I'd never heard of any such thing. And they called on people. And then you, you tell your sobriety date, like of 21 years and six months and nine days. And I'm proud of that. And I said, whoa, that's the wrong word for an alcoholic. That's not a good word for an alcoholic to be using. Grateful is a much better word. Proud's not a, not a good word. We, you know, one of, one of my favorite ever statements, Pam and uh, Angel and I did a workshop in Chapel Hill. I was a substitute for Reed. You talk about hitting low ground. <laughs> I was a substitute. But uh, I said, it's one of my favorite ever statements. And I actually thought Bill Wilson said this, but a guy came up to me after the meeting. It just caught me wrong. He said that somebody else said it. I said, I don't care who said it, man. I don't care if you said it. <laughs> but anyway, I, I love this statement. Is it, it's Bill, I think Bill Wilson said it. I asked my sponsor. He said, that's up to debate. He's, he's, he knows a lot about AA history. He said, maybe Bill Wilson said it. Maybe the other guy did. It's been argued about for years. But I love this statement. Lest we never forget, Alcoholics Anonymous is a society made up of colossal failures transformed by the grace of a loving God. We ain't got anything to be proud about now. Grateful? Okay. Proud? No cigar there. Um, step eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. I like to be very literal about that step because all it says is you make the list and you become willing. And sometimes that's some real... That's some hard ground to claim. You know, financial amends. Um, I heard my sponsor say a while back, he's been sober since, um, 
67. And he said a while back, we got people in AA now buying new cars and new entertainment centers that haven't completed their amends. I suspect that's revisionist history. I suspect that stuff's always went on. You know, I, I don't think that, uh, I, I suspect that's always went on. If, if you look at, um, anyway, I'm sure that we do have people doing that, but the eighth step says we get a list of all the people we've harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. And step nine, I love this. I heard, a, for my money, the easiest amends to make are financial amends. It may be hard to come up with the money, but they're a walk in the park. In fact, is they're usually fun to make, even if you have to make them over a period of time. Where I find amends the most difficult is when there's been spiritual warfare. And probably that's, that's when it's most needed. And it's also the place where you most need to get the guidance. Um, but ninth step says, uh, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. I've had wonderful experiences with that step. I, um, I stole a guy's snowmobile suit. I didn't even know it, but when I got sober, that lady that called somebody from AA to, in Nebraska, people that are working out in below zero temperatures wear these suits. They look, they call them snowmobile suits, but they look like astronauts. And I stole this guy's. And uh, so I didn't even have a driver's license to drive a car. I ain't nowhere. I'm not even within screaming distance of ninth step. But I borrowed this guy's car and I drove it down to the south end of town. You ever, I left the car running and the door open on the car and I went up and banged on the door. And as soon as I hit the door, that guy filled the door up. He didn't like me either. He knew me. He didn't like me. But I knew he was as, as nervous as I was terrified. As nervous as I was, I know he was nervous because he said, what's your name? He knew me. He knew me. But I told him what I'd done. Look, Hartman, I stole these. I, I'm in AA now. I'm trying to do right. I'm bringing them back. I didn't know enough to offer to pay for them. I didn't know anything. So he told me something about how much they cost, and I got out of there as quick as I could. That was something like a Wednesday. That Saturday night at the AA meeting, he, he, he was plenty uh, welcome to be in AA. But he came into the meeting. I saw him come in about two minutes to eight Saturday night. I saw him turn the corner back there, and, and when he saw me, you know how somebody, he didn't exactly, um, he didn't exactly bob his head like that, but he gave a very minor acknowledgement. I kind of a little shook up about him being in here. And uh, he sat through the meeting. He sat through the meeting. It was a tradition meeting. It's the only place I've ever heard of. Had a meeting every Saturday night on one of the traditions. After the meeting, he participated in the Lord's Prayer. He walked directly across the room up to me, stuck his hand out and said, I just want you to know how much I appreciated that. And I personally believe you're very sincere about what you're trying to do, and I wish you the best. So it was an amend made way off track, but it, it, it turned out fine. I've had all kinds of things happen with amends. Um, I've had some very healing things. I've had just, just good things. But here's what I'd like to say about step nine. I heard my sponsor talk about this, the one I have today. He talked about, this is before he was my sponsor. He talked about if you can get to the bottom of the ninth step, you've got a jet engine for life. Because the reason is what you've done is you've wiped out the past. There is no past. When Don Pritz was here, he used to talk about, this sounds very lofty, but it's extremely practical. Pritz used to say there ain't no past and there ain't no future. All there is is eternity, and you're pulling it right now. It's always right now. And I think back, there's a guy that, where I got sober. He used to say, if you don't drink today, you'll never drink. I think, man, that's heavy. What does that guy mean by that? He'd also say things like, today is the tomorrow you worried about yesterday. That kind of stuff. Just, what is this? You know? But anyway, he said, you know, the jet engine for life is that if, if I'm always, if I've wiped out the past, and I use the, the steps available to me to stay current today, then there is no past. So the way that works in real time, if I have something going on with my wife, it's a virgin argument. I'm not laying it on, past, on the top of the last 20 some years. It's brand new. It's always new. Now I'm not saying I do that perfectly. I had a deal with my wife a while back where, um, I don't know, I can't even remember what had happened, but somehow we'd gotten off track. So things are back now by the time we have this conversation. I still remember where I was sitting and she said, I know that you think that was all my fault. I know you do. But the truth of the matter is it was both of our faults. And then she said, and I, I would like to think it was all 
your fault. But I know, but I know the truth of the matter is it was both of our faults. I just sat there. That's how much I've learned, but I knew it was her fault. <laughs> so step 10. So at that point, we, at that point, what he meant, what Bob said, that is a jet engine for life. You're hooked up right now to the power of right now. And you got the horses available to deal with whatever it is that comes up. Step 10, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. There's some big stuff going on by the time we get this. That's, that's why I said that, you know, the fifth step is an event. The heavy lifting starts now. You're getting into deep spiritual water. There's a word in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, they said it's a reprieve, daily reprieve. Reprieve means a stay of execution. That's what a reprieve means. And then if you go over to the 12 and 12, I'm a big fan of the 12 and 12. I'm not part of that deal that thinks that's newspaper material. I think that's a I, I, just, I don't understand that. I think it's a great book. But it talks about in there, it's axiomatic that every time there's something wrong with me, no matter what somebody did to me, I got a problem. So the easiest way to say that is if I'm upset, it's my fault no matter what it is. And the reason that's profound and spiritually um, literal is because if it's not my fault, if it's not incumbent on me to fix it, then I'm a victim. And it's very hard to fix stuff that when you're a victim. If, it's, if I've got something I can do about it, then it makes all the sense in the world. So step 10, you know, a place to, to operate within the confines of today. Doing pretty good, ain't I? Step 11. Uh, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. That's my job description. That's what my life is. If, if we actually wrote a job description one time years ago, some of us, about, you know, a job description, if you wanted to just make a big heading, those of us that have had to write them in the work world, if you wanted to make a big one, the big job description would be to stay sober and carry the message. That'd be the big one. That's, our only, two, that's the only two parameters we've got. Everything else fits within that. Um, so I, I know what my job is. And my job is to practice these principles to the best of my ability, to carry this message to the best of my ability, to be the best AA member. And, you know, I had some, I'll, I'll assure you that not only would I not be sober today, I would not be alive if it were not for non, the intervention of people that didn't know a thing in the world about AA. I had completely forgot about this story until I told Jason this week. I don't, I don't remember how, I got all these things that happened, I'm just there, I don't have any idea how I got there, and then the story ends and I don't have any idea how it ended. I'm up in Colorado in the mountains, I got a little skinny jacket, no bigger than this, and the sun's out, you're way up there, and then when the sun goes down, people literally die up there. It's up there where the snow is in, the, in July, there's big snow piles and all of that. So I'm up there, I'm homeless, no place to go, no money, I have no idea, I don't know how I got up there. And all of a sudden, the station wagon goes barreling by. They see me, stop. I go running up there, jump in. It's a carload of Mexican men. They just got done. They weren't drunk. They were drinking. They just got done doing a job in Colorado, and they're on their way to New Mexico. So I jump in the car. They hand me a beer. Give me some cigarettes. We stopped to eat. They fed me. We stopped that night. They, we got more beer. They bought me my own. They gave me my own cigarettes, and they put me up in a motel when they stayed. All they were is a group of guys that were trying to help. That, I'm not saying we're supposed to be running around drinking, picking up hitchhikers. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is there's lots of ways to help people. That's what I'm saying. They, I mean, they helped. They, they didn't, I don't even know where they dropped me off. I just know. I just remember that. So, that's a job description, you know. I think we can be fairly safe. If you don't have any money, then you need to work. I mean, that would make pretty good sense. Uh, so I think a lot of that is, is fairly concrete. It sets us up in the morning and it takes us out in the evening. Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. I had a woman, a lot of you have heard this part, I had a woman one time, this was many years ago, asked me what was the most important word in the 12 steps. She said, what's the word in that step that makes the step go? I probably guessed every word. She said, the word is the. That's the word that makes the step go because that explains where a spiritual awakening comes from. 
That's how your spirit becomes awakened. You practice the first 11 steps to the best of your ability. A spiritual awakening moves into that. It can't not move in. You don't have to do anything. You practice the first 11 steps. That's the difference between like work, go to those meetings where you take a problem and dissect it and then you leave there more confused than when you come. Or you go to meetings where you practice the principles and learn about them and then you apply them to your problems and power them down. So I've had amazing things happen. I gave a guy his last drink over 46 years ago now. He was so sick he couldn't get off the floor. I can't remember. I've told this story so many times. He either asked for vodka and I gave him gin or he asked for gin and I gave him vodka. He was too sick to get off the floor but he immediately knew I'd give him the wrong kind of booze. Um, here's a story you probably haven't heard. Um, talking about carrying the message and, and Jerry and I were talking about people that, that continue to fail in AA. I was too new, I was too dumb to know what was going on. I'm brand new in this town and um, get a 12-step call. And the guy's name was James Bond, B-A-H-N. And uh, he had been homeless for many, many years. He'd been to prison and the judge said that he lives in either jail, post office, or the hospital. And uh, see what you can do. And I, I mean... People were, they've been done working with that guy in that town for years. I didn't know anything about that. We made the call. He was very sick. We got him into the state hospital. He got sober. He stayed sober. He went out sober. When he had his funeral, uh, my ex-wife was big pregnant, and she was ready to have the baby any day. And, and um, So we actually put her, the funeral was out in the country, in a little, there was a guy, an AA guy, that popped for the funeral. He just put the money down for it. By now, this guy's a sincere member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He's been sober a little bit over a year. We tried to find his children that he was estranged from. We weren't able to find him. Minister came out, donated his time, gave a little talk. He was familiar with AA. He'd known about it for years. Um, but on the way, you know, we, we, we put my ex-wife, she was ready to have the baby anytime. This is on a Saturday. She was ready to have the baby anytime, and we put her in this guy's Lincoln Continental that I sponsored because we figured it bounced the least, <laughs> had the most. Uh, but anyway, uh, we had the funeral on Saturday. My youngest daughter was born Sunday morning, the next day at 6.30 a.m. We named her after him. We named her Jamie. Now, I've never called her Jamie. It's hard for me to remember her name's Jamie. I got another name, got another name for her, better name. But, I, but anyway, the guy went out with some dignity, is the point. And the point, it doesn't say anything about me. I, I can't tell you, if I, if I was working with everybody now that had gotten drunk or gave me the finger either literally or figuratively after they got sober and went on or whatever, we'd be holding this meeting in JFK Stadium. <laughs> I mean, I've lost people every way known to man. Um, I lost a guy to suicide. I gave him his cake every year for seven years. And then he moved, and then he took a drink, and then a little bit later than that, he committed suicide. So there's all kinds of ways. But here's the thing about that, as, as disheartening as that is. I, we all know the company line. You can't get them sober, you can't get them drunk, right? We all know that. But it's, it's, it's disturbing. But the way I always settle it, it's their life. It's their life. And if the, if the helper is working harder than the helped, I'll assure you, it's always going to fail. You can hit them with a blast of energy to get them started, but if you're continuing to work harder than they are, it's going to fail. It's going to fail. It's their life. So anyway, um, I'm going to close with this story. It's a story about Wallace Bryan, as a matter of fact. Um, what made me think of it is I like that thing that Wallace says sometimes about down through the years. You ever heard him say that? Down through the years. I don't know how many times I've heard, it's only going to take me a couple minutes to tell this story, Jerry. Don't get nervous on me. <laughs> Stick with me. Um, I don't know how many times I've heard Wallace Bryant speak over the years. 60, 70? That wouldn't be much. I got to North Carolina on March 10th of 1989. I heard him speak on Saturday night in, in Rocky Mountain, March 11th. I've been all over the country with Wallace. They put us on a stage one time in California as big as this room trying to talk to people a quarter mile away is almost is terrible. So I've been all over the country with Wallace. I don't know how many times I've heard him talk. There's three times this has happened. Three times. Now, I, you, you take it for however you want. I know what happened. I was there. 1997, I'm sitting in the old principal's group of Wilson with a man that was 18 years old at that time, and Wallace Bryant froze him. 
If he breathes during that talk, you couldn't tell it. He literally froze him. Wallace was wearing either green or orange pants, which he now claims he wasn't, but he was. <laughs> he, he froze that guy. I don't think he breathed during the talk. Prior to that talk, couldn't stay sober. Never had another drink. I thought he might be here today. Sober what? We're going to have his 24-year anniversary, the uh, 2nd of April. Second time I heard that happen with Wallace was at the Wayne Correctional Center. Now, putting a, what we were, when I was in the prison system, in prison administration, what we were doing is about like putting the Klan and the Panthers together. It's just it wasn't a good mix. So it's always a tension in there, and there's always time problems. And my assistant had responsibility for what was going on that day, so I was, I'm on him. Keep this thing on track. So that place is full. We got, a, we got all kinds of people in there as guests. And Wallace Bryan hits that podium. He's only got, I don't know how much time he's got. But something like, it just happened again. It's like a rocket. It's like a machine gun. I don't even think he knows what he's saying. The spirit's like, something's going on there. You take it, you know, I, I was there. I know what happened. And then again, I think in 2019, the Camel Club. I went over there for one reason. I have only went to the Camel Club to make a talk, to participate in Alphathons, and I went over there on July 4th to hear Wallace talk. The place was packed. It was packed with um, treatment center people and, and uh, sober living houses, usually people that go outside and smoke and move around during the meeting. Wallace told me, he said, I'm going to save you a place up in front by me. Get up there. So I, I climbed in there, and this woman had brought Wallace a big soda full of ice. Wallace no sooner hit that podium, he kicked that thing over. I don't even think he knew it, but he was like a rocket. And I'll tell you, nobody moved. Now, those people that usually go outside and smoke and move, I mean, he, he it was riveting. Now, I don't know what happened. Tom Ivester told me one time, when something like that happens, there may not be anything else going on. It may not be any different in any other talk. I just know that three times that happened. There was some other stuff going on in that room. I'm going to close on this thought. This woman sitting next to me, I'd never seen her before, but we were all jammed in there like this. So I'm trying to get out of there, and I bumped right into her butt, right? And I said, sorry, I said, I ain't trying to do anything to you. And she said, it'd be all right. It's been a while. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, man, I got to get out of here. I don't get many of those at my age. Anyway, uh, Feather, thank you. And um, what I would say in closing is um, God bless you, the power of Alcoholics Anonymous, the grace of God, thank you for my life.